I think one of us has probably mentioned, maybe more than once, we've mentioned this sort of famous story of the time uh, when the Buddha's at the time of his enlightenment. Um, and what um, inspired him to teach was um, surveying the world, you could say, and seeing beings who were really trying to be happy, trying to find ease, peace, and at the same time doing the very thing that uh, led to their suffering. Or you could say he saw beings trying to be free, to find freedom from suffering, at the same time turning to the very source of their bondage, what was keeping them from finding it. I think there's actually a, quite a practical reflection for all of us in this story that we can uh, look at whenever we find ourselves caught in struggle in some way or um, find the, the energies of grasping or resistance, aversion, confusion uh, operating in the mind. I think it can be helpful for us to reflect at times like this that, that it's this struggle, this way that we get caught, it's a reflection of our the mind-heart looking for happiness or looking for freedom in those moments. Maybe not looking in the right place, but if we remind ourselves that these struggles are born of this movement of heart, that they reflect the heart's search, the mind's search for freedom, for happiness. We can then ask the question, where am I looking for freedom? Where am I looking for happiness? Am I looking in the right place? Will I ever find it here? Is this where I'll find that? And so we can use times when we find that we've been caught, hooked by uh, movement of the mind, grasping, clinging, identifying with experience, resisting experience, zoning out, lost in confusion. We can look at these times as a wake-up call, training ourselves to listen to our struggles and arguments and all of that energy to desire, resistance, aversion as, as kind of like, they're like messengers that tell us to, to pause and take a step back and look at what's going on. Look, are we, where am I looking for freedom? Is this where I'm looking for happiness in this attempt to control experience or hold on to something? So much of, of our practice is uh, about deconditioning, unlearning, letting go of deeply habituated patterns in the mind and heart, well-worn grooves, seeing through what you could, we could say are unproductive strategies for finding happiness. And through this process, we learn very directly where we might actually look for happiness, for freedom, what might be a right place to look for that. And these habits, these patterns, these highly conditioned uh, tendencies to hold on, to resist, they're really old, they're deeply habituated, and they take a long time to untangle. The power of these root causes of suffering, these kilesas, they're very strong, they're not to be underestimated, and we've been engaging with them for a long time, maybe for lifetimes. So of course we do fall back into habits, 
around our relationship to them. We've practiced those, they're thoroughly practiced. But we start to begin to see through this mistaken view that engaging with these energies of grasping, clinging, aversion, resistance, of confusion, that this actually works as a strategy for finding happiness, for finding freedom. We see very simply how the strategy of chasing after pleasant feelings while doing our best to avoid having any unpleasant ones and kind of zoning out in between is, is an endless, ultimately fruitless and exhausting pursuit. It, it never lasts. We may get some temporary ease or happiness from that, but it doesn't last. It's ultimately not a, a, a good strategy. But this involves a very uh, profound shift in our consciousness, really goes against such powerful conditioning. There's a radical change in our understanding that's part of that. It's not going to happen overnight, and probably for most of us. And, and one long retreat like this may not quite do the trick. It may not be enough to untangle all of that. We can see our practice and the way it unfolds in a number of ways. And Different traditions speak about things in in different ways. The Buddha taught in very different ways depending on his audience and uh, what seemed to be appropriate and understandable. We talk about stages of awakening, progress of insight, stages of enlightenment, understanding, uh, opening to one's true nature, one's Buddha nature, and all these uh, things in between these. And there's one description that I think is always appropriate, useful to reflect on, a useful way to hold the spiritual life, this path that we're walking. I think it's actually powerful and very helpful to reflect on our practice in terms of uh, what is called the ripening of the paramis, or parami or paramita in Sanskrit. And these are 10 in the Theravada tradition, it's said there are 10 beautiful, wholesome qualities of mind and heart. And it's said that the Buddha and all great beings developed these over countless lifetimes. And uh, I'll, list, I'll read the list. May, probably most of you have heard this list, may know it well, may be new to some of you. First of these is dana, generosity or giving, sila, ethical conduct, Morality, nekama, renunciation, panya, wisdom, virya, energy, effort, courageous effort, kanti, patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana, uh, resolve, metta, friendliness, loving kindness, and upeka, equanimity. It said there are these stories in what are called the Jataka tales of the lives of the Bodhisatta, the Buddha-to-be, often taking birth in animal form and uh, perfecting one or another of these qualities through a lifetime, spending a lifetime just working on generosity or uh, energy or friendship. And if we reflect on our practice, on, on our life, in 
in this practice, in terms of the ripening of these, it really expands the breadth of what we hold as practice because we get so focused on on bhavana and developing uh, concentration perhaps. And it helps to cut through uh, a habitual tendency that we often fall into of constantly judging, assessing, evaluating our experience, our practice, which is such a strong tendency. We find ourselves looking for evidence of progress and mentally comparing ourselves with others. You know, they're getting it, I'm not getting it. Is it working? Am I doing it right? This kind of uh, mental habit we can fall into. We, we judge our experience. We then judge ourselves based on our perception of that experience. It's so common that we fall into these patterns. And we overlook completely a lot of really beautiful uh, qualities of mind and heart that are being developed just because we're willing to keep at it and show up and begin again. Right there. We're developing this, all the different aspects of energy, diligence, perseverance, doggedness, however you want to call that. I think of it as doggedness. I'm a role model for doggedness. <laughs> Not very gifted as a yogi, but I have been willing to stick with it. So there's that. Um, that's being developed. It doesn't matter what, how we feel about what's going on. These things are being developed. And we can see that through cultivating, through holding the practice in this way and cultivating these, we start to see that these, these qualities really are pointing us towards um, the place where we might actually look, the right place to look for happiness, for freedom. They're pointing us, they're like fingers pointing us to what might actually be uh, a good place to look for this. And it's interesting, in some people, one or more of these qualities seems to be very highly developed. It's as though they came into life that way. We see this. Uh, sometimes we, we meet someone where they just seem to be very energetic or have a lot of generosity. It just seems to flow out of them. It's just like their nature or they're just very uh, kind and loving. My mother is a beautiful example of this for me. She was just... Um, I didn't notice it, but when I think about her, or find myself talking to someone about my mom, she was um, just had this abundance of energy. It was it was pretty amazing. She she took care of the house. She was of a generation where it was that's what she did a lot. She was a great cook. She did all the cooking, all the shopping. She had a great garden. She loved to grow flowers and vegetables. She was a really good ceramic artist, and she made pretty much all the dishes we used in the house, and they were really nice. She ran a, was a part of a cooperative arts gallery. She worked in there. She did all this volunteer work. She delivered meals to homebound elderly people. She taught sewing in poor communities. She did all this stuff. I don't know how she pulled it off. She had time for her friends. She raised four kids. I mean, I could go on. There's more. It's, but it wasn't hyper. It wasn't like this driven kind of energy. It's just the way, it's just my mom. That's just the way she was. It wasn't even wasn't special to me as a kid. It was this ease and grace in that in her case. And it's just she just had this energy. 
flowing out in this way. And people seem to come into life. And sometimes people who come to meditation, and it seems like they just deepen and progress in their practice quickly. They have a lot of concentration ability, for example, or uh, things that enable their practice to unfold. And it's, it's understood, you know, and if teachers, especially maybe uh, teachers in, in Asia, they talk about practice, oh, it's parami is very ripe, parami is ripening, and it's understood that not, we're not all the same in this regard. They hold, they hold the practice with a very broad view, this ripening of paramis, and, and it, it's not, it happens in an uneven way often. I mean, how do we feel? What if this entire retreat, this entire lifetime, is just all about cultivating uh, this stick to itiveness, this diligence, this, uh, that, some aspect of energy, or one of the other of these? Uh, paramis. After Spring's talk, I was tempted to bring some toys in, <laughs> uh, but all my all my toys are at home. <laughs> but I do have quite a few very nice stuffed animals. <laughs> I love animals, and um, but I brought a book to share. I'm going to read you a story. Some of you have heard this. This is a one of my favorite books. It's a level two reading with help book, which is really my speed a lot of the time. And uh, this is from a book called Frog and Toad Together by Arnold Lobel. And uh, I love Frog and Toad. So I'm going to read a story called The Garden. And uh, I wish I could show you the pictures. They're very, frog is green, toad is brown and lumpy, as toads tend to be. So this is the garden. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog. It is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. (laughs) Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, now seeds start growing. (laughs) Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, now seeds start growing. Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise? He asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You are shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. 
And all the next day, Toad played music for his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still, not, still did not grow, start to grow. What shall I do? cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. <laughs> then Toad felt very tired and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. <laughs> so we use this image to describe our meditation practice a lot as though we're planting seeds. Really a lot of, it's a really apt image. You know, every moment of mindfulness we're putting a seed in the ground. A seed, this intention to be presence, present. And a lot of the time we're like Toad with his seeds. You know, they're not coming up fast enough. You know, we ask the question like Toad, how soon, as soon as we put them in. You know, we're immediately starting to, to see if they're growing. And when they don't come up as fast as we want them to, we start to yell at them maybe. Or we yell at ourselves internally. We're not doing it right, we're not any good. Maybe we try strategies, Toad, with his stories and poems and music and songs and poetry. But usually we're not as kind as Toad. He was concerned about his frightened seeds and did all these nice things to try to calm them and help them be not frightened. But we blame our seeds or blame ourselves or find blame somewhere, pointing around here and there to fix the blame for our apparent lack of results. And, you know, we're so impatient. We we have impatience uh, societally, I think. It's everything has to be done fast, you know, and fast is always seen as better. And we lose interest so quickly if things don't happen as quickly as we want them to. And we're always looking for a better way. Better equals quicker, some kind of shortcut. You may have heard this story. I don't know if one of my colleagues mentioned this. In the early, very early days of the founding of IMS, they received a letter in the mail. It was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. And that's what we want. We want instant meditation right now. This is a, a little story from uh, the Samyutta Nikaya. Suppose a hen has eight, 10, or 12 eggs. If she doesn't cover them rightly, warm them rightly, or incubate them rightly, then even though this wish may occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws and beaks and hatch out safely. It is not possible that the chicks will break through the shells and hatch out safely. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them rightly, warmed them rightly, or incubated them rightly. So it doesn't matter how quickly we want things to happen on our how, how much we want things to happen quickly on our timetable. If we don't sit on our eggs, they're not going to hatch. And it might take a while. And because we have so much impatience, I think this is conditioning is very strong in, in us a lot of the time. We tend to misunderstand what patience is about. Patience is one of these paramis. And we can sometimes confuse it with an attitude of, 
of not caring or some kind of indifference or uh, not being really committed to what we're doing, some kind of lack of resolve or an indifference, just letting things run their course, but but in a in a uh, in a an overly carefree attitude, or else we might think that patience is pointing to some kind of uh, stoic endurance where we we grit our teeth and bear down and uh, wait for things to change, waiting for it to change, hoping for things to change, and you know we make it through, but we we get tight and contracted in the process. But patience doesn't mean mindlessly enduring something that's difficult, praying for it to end. And what we we do in the practice is we really train ourselves to stay steady and apply a, a clear, steady attention to what we're doing without shrinking back or running away from what's difficult, from challenges, because we're going to inevitably face challenges if we're ever going to take this practice to any real depth. That's, that's guaranteed at times. It's going to be hard. And so we, we learn to follow through with some steadiness and consistency and, and a kind of real determination that is not a gripping of the mind and heart, not a forcing, but a real steadfastness. Because um, the fruits of practice aren't going to just magic, they don't magically appear. They're born of, they reveal themselves in their own time and they're born of this steady application of, of effort, skillful, steady application of effort. And we don't want to learn about patience usually because we have to do it when things are not going the way we want them to, do, to go, when things are difficult. That's, um, that's when we learn about patience. You know, it doesn't come up when things are going well. You know, when we're having really pleasant experience that we like, the issue of patience doesn't come up then, does it? We don't usually have to be patient when we like patient when we like what's happening. But without the quality of patient endurance, steadfastness with this uh, quality of patience, we're going to um, suffer in our lives in our practice because things aren't always going to go how we want them to. We've seen that. If we could get it to go the way we would want it to, if that was a power that we had, there'd be no point in doing a retreat like this. We could just say, let it be this way, always, from now on. But difficult times in our practice, they build a kind of, they really help us cultivate a qualities of determination and a kind of inner strength. And it's really helpful to hold them this way, I think to see that they actually provide us with uh, this opportunity to cultivate these qualities, these opportunities to develop tolerance, patience, steadfastness. So if we hold them in this way, rather than getting angry, we can actually uh, see that they provide us with this really um, uh, rare, this good opportunity and we can hold them carefully with kindness. You know, these. In our practice, how often, you know, we're minding our own business, things are going pretty well, and then for no apparent reason, it just changes. Everything changes, and and things seem to fall apart. Things are easy, clear, we feel relaxed, we're present, we're connecting with the flow of things, and it's just happening by itself, and then the next moment, it falls apart, and we're, 
we're resisting what's happening, we're angry, we're holding on in some way, we're frustrated, and it just feels like it's back and forth between these a lot of the time. You know, it might be easier if it didn't change so much. If it was just kind of a drag all the time, maybe we'd get used to it. <laughs> but it, sometimes it's not bad, right? You know, there, things seem to come together for a little bit, and then it falls apart again. And, and uh, you know, what, what happened immediately? What did I, I did something wrong? That's what we tend to say to ourselves. What did I do? I was on retreat, I don't know, two or three years ago now, I was doing a retreat at the Forest Refuge, and at one point I thought if I had never meditated, I would be better at it than I was. <laughs> you know, at least no worse. It was like it just felt like a complete train wreck. And that's, you know, kind of humbling <laughs> when you've been at it for a long time and you're supposed to be a meditation teacher, right? But these things, it happens, it feels that way at times. And so we really need to nurture this quality of patience. And patience is imbued with qualities of acceptance and forbearance and compassion, gentleness, kindness, steadiness. This is all there in this quality of patience. That's what really distinguishes it from just simply uh, some kind of stoic endurance. It has these and it lets us stay steady and navigate the ups and downs of a life and all the changes that come. And as we've mentioned, there are said to be planes of existence where it's always pleasant. We can see times in our practice where we take birth in a moment into a very pleasant, blissful kind of realm. We don't have to see it as different uh, planes of existence. It happens uh, just through the unfolding of our practice. And that might sound kind of good to us now and then on retreat. I'll take that, yeah. But it's said that this realm, the human realm, with its joys and sorrows and pleasant and unpleasant and difficulties and uh, times when things go well, that this is the best place to practice. It's not so pleasant that, that it's not too pleasant. We have some inspiration and it's not so difficult that we're just crushed under the weight of suffering all the time. It's a good balance and this is the best place to practice. And what the Buddha was pointing to always is a freedom that is not dependent on the conditions being any particular way. And we say this all the time and we know this, but it's really important that we hold this truth in our minds and hearts because true freedom cannot be dependent on things being any particular way because nothing lasts. Conditions are always changing. And if our freedom depends on the conditions and circumstances of our life being a particular way, we're just, it's a setup for us to fail at finding peace, freedom, happiness. There's no real freedom in a conditioned state like that. You know, and we come to retreat and we're just trying to, we just want to find some peace, some calm, some ease. And we sit down and we start paying attention to this mind and heart and body, and we find, you know, this wild, uncontrollable mind won't do what we want it to do. It's times when it's just full of resistance and pettiness, and the body is uncomfortable, and everything we've ever repressed or denied (laughs) or done our best to, to ignore, it shows up. And even stuff that's not so difficult, but it's just boring and repetitious or, you know, embarrassing, 
every piece of music we've ever listened to, every stupid song, every, the theme song to every stupid TV show we watched. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. And no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. I mean, that might mean something to some of you. That dates me. <laughs> it was a silly TV show from the 60s about a talking horse. I mean, I was on retreat recently. Rising, falling, and the theme song to Mr. Ed shows up. It's like, I didn't ask for that. And you're not going to thank me for the fact that it'll be playing in your, in your mind. <laughs> but everything is going to come up sooner or later. And there's so much in our experience that we tend to find unacceptable. And all this stuff that we put in compartments, not going to look at that. And then it's going to show up. And if our strategy is to avoid it, we're in for it because it's going to sneak up on us and show up at some point sooner or later. And we can have this idea that we have to get rid of certain things in order to be able to really practice, in order for our, our meditation to unfold, we have to get to some special state. But right now, in the middle of things, right now, right here, with this mind and this body and this heart, is where the practice unfolds. It's not in some future state of grace. It's right in the midst of this whole mass is where the Dhamma reveals itself. And this quality of patience is one of our very best allies because it allows us, helps us, makes it possible for us to navigate this process with um, some sense of stability, with a kind, gentle, caring heart. And we're gonna get caught and lost over and over until we're fully enlightened it's going to happen, and sometimes it's going to be difficult and painful. This is from uh, the Dalai Lama. The practice of patience guards us against losing our presence of mind. It enables us to remain undisturbed, even when the situation is really difficult. It gives us a certain amount of inner peace, which allows us some self-control, so that we can choose to respond to situations in an appropriate and compassionate manner, rather than just being driven by our disturbing emotions. And so we need to really remind ourselves that this path, is, it takes time. It's a gradual path. We're unlearning a lot of habits that are deeply, deeply uh, habituated, a lot of patterns, mental patterns, that we've been practicing for a long time. And the only way we're going to undo that is to be resolute and to stick with the practice. That's what's going to make the difference. Because if we're just struggling and fighting all the time, fighting with the way it is, we set up a situation where we're never good enough, we're never okay as we are. Often we get opportunities to develop patience that we uh, might wish we weren't getting. Usually that's the way it is. You know, as I was saying, we learn about patience at times when, when we're impatience, impatient. We learn about letting go by seeing where clinging is happening. This is how the practice unfolds so much. We learn about equanimity by getting to know reactivity. In the, in the uh, last few years of my parents' lives, they were, my parents were 
uh, together for 70 years. Now there's an example of patience. I know patience is part of that story that they, they were together for 70 years. That's a long time just to breathe. But to stay married to someone, they seem to actually still like each other. <laughs> and, and they both lived to be nearly 92. And my mother had a real decline in her mental abilities in her later years, some, some kind of uh, senile dementia or whatever words you want to uh, put to that. And it was very hard for my father. And my sister and I were really um, very involved in looking after them in the last few years of their lives. And um, it was hard. You know, some of you I know know this so well. And my mother's short-term memory was gone. And, you know, we'd have the same conversations over and over. And she'd ask something and I'd answer. And she'd, as soon as I finished, she'd ask it again. It didn't stay. Nothing was staying in there. And my father, he was so reactive to uh, seeing her decline. It was so painful for him. And he, he, he often was angry. And um, it was really hard. And it took such patience. And there were so many times when I you know, I, impatience would be there and I would say things that I really regretted. Very painful. And, and have to do my best to ask for forgiveness and forgive myself and uh, work with that. It's not easy. And in times like this, if we just tell ourselves to be patient and tolerate this, and um, we can get into this sort of tight place of just bearing it. And um, it's if we really can open to the quality of impatience, really get to know that, feel what, how does it manifest? What are the stories that come into our hearts and minds at times like this? How does it feel in our body? What's going on with that quality, that energy? We get to really know that. What are the stories, the emotions? What happens when we get identified with all of that in the moment? We get to learn about it that way. We explore it. That's really more useful way of relating to impatience. Then we start to learn and we start to touch the quality of patience at those times. One you could say strategy that can be useful in helping to cultivate and develop patience and, and conversely uh, help us to uh, understand and, and get to work with impatience is looking at our relationship to unpleasant experience. I've been talking a lot about uh, pleasant and unpleasant. You know, how often do we relate to unpleasant experience or an unpleasant feeling tone that arises in relation to experience? more what's happening there. How often do we relate to that as bad or wrong or something we have to get rid of, a problem? So often that's our relationship to that. And we can write off a whole day because there was a predominance of unpleasant feeling tone in relation to experience. And we can hear ourselves saying, people come into um, these meetings and say, well, it didn't go so well. I had a kind of a bad day yesterday. or um, didn't go so well this morning. And what is being, what we're talking about is it was, there was mostly an unpleasant feeling tone arising in the mind in relation to what was happening. And, oh, it's been going really well. 
it was pleasant feeling. That's what we tend to be pointing at there. Look and see how often that's what we're doing there. And we can write off whole parts of our lives because of this quality of unpleasant feeling. And if we relate to these kinds of feelings as bad, wrong, something to get rid of, we can dismiss dismiss that whole experience as uh, without value, as, as not having any meaning. But if we can reframe our experience in the moment, hold it in a different way, bring some interest and investigation to what's happening there, see it, something to explore here, our mind and heart can actually open right in the midst of it. And we start to see that, that things are happening due to conditions that the pleasant feeling tone is arising out of the conditions there. It's impersonal, it's subject to change. It will pass away and we can start to touch a place of freedom right in the midst of that experience that we would tend to dismiss as only a problem, something to, to have go away. And we, we learn to meet our life more completely, more fully. And rather than trying to make life meet our expectations, live up to our agendas about how it's supposed to be. We meet our life, meet our experience as it is, just as it is. Another useful consideration uh, for developing patience is to remind ourselves that, that the practice consists of small steps taken many times. That's all we can do. We can just do this step. And if we have it in mind, I'm going to be mindful for the whole day or this whole sitting or the next five minutes, we might set ourselves up to fail because we might not be able to do that and we can get frustrated and very impatient with ourselves. But if we can remind ourselves, all I have to do is connect right now for this minute. I can just be here now, right now, and then the next one. And then if I'm still here, I'll do the one after that. And if I get lost when I come back, because I will at some point, I'll do that one then. So we take these, um, these small steps over and over. So there's this light, steady effort that we make in each moment that's actually sustainable, manageable. We can do that. There's a technical definition of patience Uh, from one of the texts that I think has some interesting and useful considerations. I'll read this uh, definition. It said, patience has the characteristic of acceptance. Its function is to endure the desirable and the undesirable. Its manifestation is tolerance or non-opposition. And seeing things as they really are, are its proximate cause. So, it says it has this characteristic of acceptance. And that's a key quality, a key aspect of this, uh, of patience. And this quality of acceptance, it means that we're, we're gonna take our stand on reality, on the way things really are. We're acknowledging the truth. Right now, it's like this, the truth of this moment. It's like this now. Not what we want it to be, or how we think it's supposed to be, but the way it really is. And it's important to remember that this quality of acceptance is not resignation. Resignation is is 
an energy that's uh, an energy of defeat and collapse. But acceptance is alive and vital and connected. It's really present. It's not uh, defeated. And this points to, uh, in this definition, it says seeing things as they really are, this is the proximate cause for the arising of patience. You know, so often we're focused on the way we want things to be, the way we think it's supposed to be. We, we lose sight of, of how it is right now. It said in that definition, the function of patience is to do endure the desirable and the undesirable, or you could say to uh, be with what's pleasant or unpleasant, agreeable, disagreeable, what we want, what we don't want. I think more than once we've uh, referred to a, a well-known teaching where the Buddha is speaking to his son Rahula. And at one point in there, he advises him, he says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop Meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So this quality of patience allows this uh, kind of firm steadiness in the face of our experience. And we sit like the earth. And like the Buddha said to practice, sit like the earth. Develop meditation that is like the earth. So this quality of being impartial and firm and resolute We sit like a mountain, we're not moved. The mountain is not moved. That definition, it said, uh, the function of patience is to be able to um, be with, to stay steady with the desirable and the undesirable. And we don't usually think of the desirable as being something we have to have patience with or patiently uh, endure the desirable. But I think in part this points to having a, a real uh, relationship with, him, with the truth of impermanence. And we endure the, des- the desirable in that we know that it won't last, that it's subject to change, that it's subject to arising and passing away. And so there's this quality of balance with those changes. We don't try to hold on to that pleasant experience, which is going to change. So we're enduring it in that respect. And it's said then that definition that the manifestation of patience is tolerance or non-opposition. And this is the aspect of this quality that is not in contention with experience, that is, enables us to flow with the changes that come, that lets us ride them without fighting against things when they're difficult. And we build this real strength of heart in this, where we don't falter in the face of what's difficult. We don't shrink in defeat or withdraw from what's challenging. And we don't struggle and fight. We don't get into fighting against it either, a fight that will just exhaust us. So this is, and lead us to to giving up usually. Exhausted and we give up. So this quality of non-opposition as the manifestation of the heart of patience. Sometimes patience, patient endurance manifests as as really incredible courage and uh, compassion. I'd like to read uh, an excerpt from uh, a, uh, a Christmas sermon on peace by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's something I just find so 
um, beautiful and points to this uh, courage and compassion aspect of patience. We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system because non-cooperation with evil is just as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And so throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit culturally and otherwise for integration, but we'll still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. So these words to me, they point to this, one of the most beautiful and I think powerful aspects of this quality of patience that is imbued with this courageous heart of compassion, the heart that knows suffering, that understands the nature of delusion, knows what it is like to act from suffering and delusion, to act from confusion, and is able somehow to bring kindness and compassion to bear in the face of that. There's a a very beautiful one-line description of patience uh, from a poet named John Chardy that I think uh, points to this somehow. He said, patience is the art of caring slowly. So on a final note about this quality of patience, this parami, it's worth remembering, as I've said throughout this talk, that um, as we walk this path, reminding ourselves that most things that are really worthwhile in a life take time to develop and grow. This is from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tan Jeff. Good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. So we do the practice, focusing on what we're doing rather than getting into an internal dialogue about when the results are going to come, what they're going to be like, and how we can speed up the practice. Many times our efforts to speed things up up actually just get in the way. As for whether the results are coming as quickly as you'd like, or when they do come, whether they're going to stay as long as you'd like, that's going to depend on what you're doing right here and now. Our desire to have the results come, our desire to have them stay, is not going to keep them here. It's the actual doing of the practice that will make the difference. So I'll leave you with a poem by 
uh, Linda France. It's called Dreaming the Real. I'm lying down, looking at the color of sky falling through trees, dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go, simply exhale so the day could breathe itself in and open without me standing in the way? How could I forget the tender grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, warm as midday light? Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain, and all its shades of gray. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin and to master the art of loving it, feel it love me back under my skin. So we'll just uh, keep sitting quietly for a few minutes. Let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.